All right, please take your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We've been working our way through 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're actually take two verses uh, today. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if we're going to have a, a, a two or three parts or just a one part on this because there's so much to say about each of these topics. But I want to reserve some of the things that I want to say today for a Sunday message that will be coming up pretty soon. Uh, because verses 3 and or verses 4 and 5 that we're going to be looking at in chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5. Uh, their directions as to the qualifications regarding an elder, when you're appointing elders, and we've talked about pretty much uh, I mean, everything that applies to an elder's life applies to every Christian here as far as God's calling us, except with perhaps the exception of uh, being able to teach. Although all of us should keep in mind that everybody, that as Christians we're to be examples, amen, and teach by our examples in some way. But the qualifications there means more than just by example, though. I believe in 1 Timothy 3. But we're seeing characteristics that are reflective of Christ here and a mature believer. So it's important that as we study this, you don't say, wow, we're almost through the elder section, okay, uh, this doesn't apply to me. No, it, it most certainly does apply to us in the sense that these are godly attributes that God is looking for in leaders. And as Christians, we're all supposed to be growing in these godly attributes, amen? Except perhaps as teachers in a formal sense, as I'd already mentioned. Uh, now, it's interesting because Timothy now is going to be told by Paul as he is to appoint elders. Timothy is to appoint elders. He's being called to, this is what you look for, Timothy, because he's the uh, pastor of the fellowship there, and he's going to be appointing elders. And Titus is told by Paul uh, the qualifications to appoint elders as well uh, in the book of Titus. And in verses 4 and 5, we read this, verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So the elder must be a good manager of his household. His kids must not be going wild and out of control. And uh, now you can have a good manager, and you can have a restaurant where there's a really good manager. That doesn't mean every employee is going to be a great employee. Josiah, you work in the restaurant business. Do you have, any, you have a good manager? You might want to withhold your words. Oh, he's shaking his head up and down. So maybe your boss is listening, you know. But uh, you can have a really good manager, but you can have, you know, some, <laughs> uh, you know, bad workers. And uh, depending, and that's in a lot of fields, amen. But... This calls for something more than just being a good manager. It calls for an elder. His kids need to be under control as well. So that means they're at least responding to his counsel. Uh, now, it's interesting because he makes the argument here that he has to be a good manager and his children must be under control. Uh, but he also kind of basically builds on that point, or I should say we have an addition to that point in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. If you go over there with me, uh, that would be great. I think this is an important cross-reference to get a fuller understanding of what Paul is saying. Uh, he's giving the, the qualifications for the elder to Titus. Paul's writing a letter to another young pastor named Titus. And in verse 6, he says, Namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who what? Who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Okay? Now, it's interesting because this is very difficult because today, in, in this day and age, uh, when you look at these qualifications for an elder, sometimes they're just dismissed as not being important, you know? 
But Paul makes a very, very important point here. He states, if he cannot manage his own household, how can he manage the church of God? In other words, if he has two or three or four children and they're all just out of control and living for the world, involved in drunkenness or uh, dissipation, rebellion, you know, uh, and he doesn't have them under control, how is that man going to govern scores or perhaps hundreds of, of God's children if he can't manage his own household? Amen. That's the point Paul is making here. Now in Titus, when it says believing children that believe, uh, this could be translated two different ways, and there's basically a scholarly debate uh, in regard to what's being said there. Well, isn't it so simple? It just says children that believe, Joe. It sounds like they just have to be believers, you know? Well, it's not that simple because one thing you ask the question, and I should probably go to the text and look a little more at the point I want to address than pop right to a difficulty with a misunderstanding of the text. Uh, when you have you know, a 10-year-old kid, an 8-year-old kid, a 7-year-old kid, or what have you, can you know for sure that they're believers? I mean, can you? You know? I mean, perhaps the Lord divinely shows you they're for sure trusting Christ, you know? You can see evidences to a degree, but I've pastored people where sometimes you wonder, even with grown-ups, right, for sure, uh, where they're at sometimes when you see certain things. But the, the reason, now, now if it just said believe and it just, that Greek word could just be translated believe and that was it, then we'd have to say, okay, well, you must, the, the text must mean to the best of our knowledge they seem like believers, right? Because God's word is the word of God, amen? But the Greek word is pistis there and sometimes it's hard to translate pistis because oftentimes the same exact Greek word pistis can be translated believe or faithful, okay? In fact, there's a debate in the church right now over uh, the word pistis, not in regard to this specific text, but in regard to a God calling believers to be faithful. Now, most Christians believe that Christians ought to be faithful, but uh, I've got, I think, two or three different books just on that argument, which is pretty fascinating, uh, and some texts that is, are believed, that are traditionally translated to believe, that should be emphasizing faithfulness in those specific texts. Those texts are hard to deal with, though, because... Uh, it's not always very definitive. However, true belief, biblical belief, is a faithful belief. Amen? Faith that works is dead. Amen? And that helps me understand a lot. But I believe specifically that word pistis could be translated and is translated in certain translations, uh, faithful there. Because we translated believe or faithful. Because I cannot know for sure if my child is a believer you know, I have three children, and by the grace of God, I believe they're all believers because I've seen them now for years, right? And they all live out of the house now, and they're all involved in various ministries and so forth, and it's beautiful. But, but if they were, when they were younger, you know, you could always, you know, you hoped, you saw, you'd say, yeah, my kid's a believer. You could say that, think that. But I could know whether or not they were, are faithful, right? And the context seems to fit because in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, says the elder, namely, if any man is above reproach and the husband of one wife having children who, and if it's translated, are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That would fit faithful very well, wouldn't it? Because if they're involved in dissipation, you know, uh, involved in rebellion, you know, and just not submitting to the house rules and unfaithful to the house rules, uh, you could know that pretty quick. Although I say with humility that I can't be absolutely positive 
how it would be best translated. I just lean personally that uh, when I look for an elder, his kids can say, he can have children, they can, can have five children, they can all say they believe, but if they're getting drunk and they're involved in dissipation and they're rebelling to God, I'm thinking, well, they're not faithful though. They're not being faithful to the house rules, uh, to, to the leadership of the husband or, or the wife, amen? So, and now this poses another situation. It's like, well, who has perfect children? What elder has perfect children where all the children are constantly uh, never in rebellion, never sin, because sin is rebellion, right? And, and how do you get an elder then if you're looking for perfection? Well, he's not saying, he's not speaking of perfection here, obviously, because nobody's perfect, you know. But, uh, and it's also difficult because, you know, sometimes uh, 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 an elder can be a great elder and uh, he could have a couple children that are obedient and faithful and could have a child that goes off. Now, he does have children that are faithful. There's one over here that's not, you know. Well, where, where do you draw the line? That's where it gets a bit difficult, you know. And one thing is, you know, many commentators will say the word for children here are those technoses. Uh, technos refers to those who are in the home. Uh, I don't know that the Greek word necessarily could mean that. It has to mean that. However, it's interesting, when I was going through this study, I'm also going through numbers right now, and I thought it was very interesting because the Lord talks about, not even cross-referencing this, it just, it just passes my mind because I've been meditating upon it for a few weeks, but when I was in numbers, the Lord is talking about how if a husband's wife makes a rash vow and she doesn't keep it in he allows her to make it and, con and consents to it, you know. You know, she's responsible. He's, gonna re he's responsible. However, if the, man, if the woman makes a wife makes a rash vow and he says, no, don't make that vow, even though she's made it, if he does it immediately, it could be rescinded. And then it says, if a child makes, a, his daughter, for instance, makes a rash vow, and he says, no, don't make that vow. You can't keep that, you know, and so forth. But I notice it emphasizes his daughter who is in his house. I thought that's interesting. His daughter who is in his house, he's responsible for her decisions while she's in, under his care if she's refusing to follow the leadership of the man. And I thought, ooh, Lord, that's kind of crazy that I'm in this passage right now looking at this. And it's something that's throughout an entire chapter of Numbers, a lot of the chapter, I should say, uh, it, it covers this. It, it repeats it over and over again, you know. And it's given as a warning. I thought, this is, this, is, uh, this is good because what if an elder has a child that's outside the house and that child decides that, you know, to do their own thing? Is that the, that the fault of the elders? No, because he's supposed to manage his what well? His house well, okay? So I'm trying to parse this for you, let you know some of the things that we go through as elders when we look at these things. Or we may have an elder who has, like I said, a few children and, and somebody may be walking and somebody may not be walking as much. Well, where does it become an issue? It becomes an issue when it's harder to parse because it could also be with the wives. A wife can go off, you know, for some time or whatever. I had an elder come to me one time and say, hey, my wife, you know, she's going through some, a lot of struggles right now. I think I should step down. And I said, maybe you ought to. I go, but you know what? Let's, because I thought, you know, how, I, I got into de in a little more detail about how are things with you and her and where's everything at? And I gave it a little bit of time. I said, let's give it a little bit of time and see what happens with this, and if she doesn't get right in her heart, you know, with you and so forth, then it would be wise for you to step down. And uh, so sometimes you work with them, and you're patient. And by the way, as we're looking at the elders here, we're looking at their family lives. Notice one of the first things he mentions is they must be what? They must show hospitality. That means an elder should be able to open 
his or in his home, if he's single or with his wife, and, and allow people there and minister to people out of their homes, you know? And we have to make sure that we're not too proud to do that or too selfish to do that or, well, I'm not too proud. I just don't know if my furniture and my house is clean enough. It's, well, that's pride. You've got to put people before what people think of your house, amen, or your furniture or your casserole, right? You know? Uh, because sometimes in ministry you get really busy. Your house isn't always going to be spick and span, right? Uh, but God wants us to reach out to souls and love people. Amen? And so hospitality is important. And uh, by the grace of God, since Lisa and I were, <laughs> I mean, we've always reached out to people. It's just by the grace of God, he's the way he wired us spiritually. Uh, we need to always do more. But our house has been grand central off and on through the years, you know? And uh, when we got in the place we're at now, you know, it was like, Lisa was like, I think it's too small because it was, you know, it's not too small. It's like we had Josiah still in the house and it was like 18, 1900 square feet. But I said, but man, look at all the parking for the fellowship, you know. And, and then you entry, you know, and it's, got, it's big enough to minister to. And a big backyard and we could use that and people can come back and fellowship. Then COVID hit, man. And we just had all these people in our backyard fellowshipping, man, and continued to not really miss a beat, staying in fellowship with everybody. And God worked that out. But it can get tiresome and tiring at times in ministry, you know, and, and God has graciously allowed us to juggle, you know, but he also goes on to say not just hospitality, but he says what? The, the husband of what? One wife. He's a one-woman man, okay? He doesn't have more than one wife. He doesn't have a wife and a, a woman on the side and what have you, and so as elders, it's, elders are going to be those who account the cost, and they're, hey, I'm serving Jesus. This could go for every believer, by the way. We should all be hospitable, it's not just elders. Oh, elders are called to be hospitable. Well, all believers are called to be show hospitality. I, just, I did a whole teaching on hospitality a few months back where we talked about just hospitality in general, but also the husband and one wife, you know. And when I became a pastor, I tried to learn from people that I'd seen that had gone before us and from the Scripture primarily, but then I saw, what are people doing out there? And I'd see pastors fall left and right. There was a church I was going to years ago, and the pastor brought up another pastor in town, or another church in town, and he says, how come that church, what's wrong with that church? How come every, all the pastors keep falling into adultery? And I was like, whoa, you know, I didn't even know what was going on, you know, at that church. And that wasn't even a church that might come to your mind right now, you know, subsequent to that. That was a pretty big church where that was going on. But I'll tell you what, guys, uh, I learned by the grace of God, I thought, you know what? These pastors, I don't see the Apostle Paul, I don't see Peter going to a church office and sitting with, a, not, sitting with another woman as a secretary, hanging out for eight hours a day alone. Well, that happens at thousands of churches around the world. I go, I don't see that in Scripture, <laughs> you know? I see that as a, uh, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Abstain also from all appearance of evil, Amen. Uh, the Bible says to be careful and, and not to make any provision for the flesh. You don't want to put yourself in any kind of situation, you know. And by the grace of God, I decided, you know what, Lisa, she's like, how could I not right to be a pastor's wife? I don't even know how to play the piano. No kidding. That was like one of the first things she said. And I think that's because the church we were at uh, when she first was walking with Jesus, the, the pastor's wife played piano. And I guess she assumed all pastor's wives have to play pianos. And uh I said, baby, don't worry about that, you know. I said, you can't sing either. It's still going to work out, you know. No, I didn't say that. She can sing. <laughs> but I said, baby, that's fine, you know. I go, but you know, I told her, I want you to be my secretary, though. That way, if I've ever fallen into a relationship with my secretary, it's a good thing, right? So she became my secretary. 
And, uh, I'm, and yesterday we were talking in the office and I was leaving after we did a, our podcast and I was downstairs and the girls called me in, Lisa, and then Mary, who I call Mary, Lisa's secretary, you know, they called me in. I think we chatted for, that was a long talk, about an hour or, or maybe a little over an hour. And, uh, and then Lisa stepped out for a minute. I don't care about the glass doors. I'm like, Mary. So I just walked, took a few steps back. And Lisa was just 10 feet away doing something. But I said, but that's, that's how we roll. It's like, I'm not even going to be alone with her for a minute. Why? Don't need to be, you know? And, uh, and I'm not saying everybody has to have the same. But guess what? If more and more pastors, I'm not saying every pastor, I mean, you can't always, it's not always practical to have your wife as your secretary. But guess what? You can sure make sure you're not hanging out with women alone. And as the elders in this fellowship will tell you, you know, uh, Chad's upstairs right now and uh, ministering to the young people and Steve's over there, but we have a hard and fast rule. You're going to be elder in this, in our team. You're not going to minister to women alone, okay? And I think the church overall would be way, more, way healthier if, we, if that's how we operated, amen? So, so we're looking at family life here. So we're also looking at parenting. Is, is elders have to uh, be parents. They have to be involved in their children's lives. They have to care about them. You cannot control you cannot guarantee that your child is going to become a believer, amen? But if they are under your, in, under your care, they're not an adult now, and they're in your home, you can make sure that they are being faithful to your rules, that they are uh, being disciplined if they are breaking the rules, amen? And the thing is, is, a lot of elders today, a lot of pastors, they don't discipline their children anymore. So there's a running joke, and it's not really a joke to me. When I hear it, it's sad. You hear it's a, you know, a PK. You know what a PK is? Pastor's kid. And it's a joke because how come it's like the pastor's kids are always the most, not always, but it's the joke that they're oftentimes the most rebellious kids in the church, you know? And that should not be that way. That breaks the heart of God. And you should pray for the elders, not just here, but any churches you get ministry from or ministries, pray for the leaders, man, because they're under attack. You think Satan's just kicking back? No, he's going to attack our families, attack our children and so forth. But we can't guarantee that our children will believe in the Lord. And I, I've told you so many times through the years, Isaiah 1 is so instructive. The Lord says himself that, I, that, that they, I put, you, know, you put bits in the horse's mouths and they obey you, but you have disobeyed me. So God's own children have gone astray. His first two children, right? Adam, remember him? Eve, they both went astray. And they had the perfect father. Amen? So being a perfect parent even is not going to guarantee your children will be believers. But if you sow into their lives, right, uh, that's going to uh, give them the greatest opportunity to come to the Lord and those seeds that you plant can come into fruition later when they go through a crisis or whatever. But the, the key is to bring them up in the Lord right now, right? Because the, the earlier they come to Christ and, and commit to Him, the more likely they will stay, stick to Christ, amen? A lot of people quote the scripture, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's older, he will not depart, to meaning, oh, that means they'll backslide, but then they'll come back. No, the point there, and by the way, I've shown you that that translation, it can be totally translated inversely, and a lot of scholars point that out, and I went through a whole teaching on that, where if you, uh, if you don't train up a child in the way he should go, uh, uh, he won't depart, meaning from his wicked way. It can be understood that way, the Hebrew, that is. And both are true. If you train up a child in the way he should go, it's more likely he's going to walk. Amen? If you don't train up a child in the way he's going to go, it's more likely that they don't come to the Lord. 
So do the best you can. And keep in mind, our children are God's children first. I remind you, Ezekiel says that the fathers and that their sons, they all belong to me. Amen. And each person will give an account before God in regard to their own life. And the, do not say the children's teeth are set on edge because of the sins of their parents, you know. Although a parent's sins can definitely affect the worldview and the upbringing of the child and the choices they make later. But the child's not punished later because of the sins of the parents. Now, so it's imperative when we look at this text that, you know, and I, I don't want to just speak because it's like some of you are thinking, well, you know, I'm not going to be an elder. Again, this applies to all of us because we're all involved in this process. The church is a family. You understand that, right? You know, the Bible has certain verses that talk about the family, but you know the verses that are talked about regarding family the most, what they are? The church. There's there's a certain amount of verses that are directed to our individual families, but there's multiple times those amount of verses that deal with the family of God, which is the church. And that's why if you put God's family first, you put the Lord first, right? And, and, and being part of his family. And that may divide you even from your own family because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36, don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword, meaning the sword of his word, Amen. And a man's foes or enemies shall be they of their own household. And a mother will be divided from daughter and mother-in-law, from daughter-in-law and so forth. And he says, if you don't love me more than you love your family, you have no part of me. And the crazy thing about that, which I think is in a beautiful way, is that's not anti-family. That becomes the most, one of those pro-family verses I can, passages I can find in Scripture. That's Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. You know why? Because I have people that I've met through the years, that think, hey, you know what? I, I, you know, I, I want to be in fellowship and so forth, but I really need to spend time with my family. And their family doesn't want the Lord. Wife doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. Or husband doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. Kids don't. And then instead of being in fellowship, what do they do? They, they're out of fellowship. Do you think that's going to be helpful to the family coming to the Lord? Yes or no? No. But when people are sold out for Jesus... Right? They put him first in their lives. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and he adds all these needs that we have. And often what happens is people see that you're for real, and then you are in a living epistle. You're, uh, you're, uh, in a, you're a, basically in a version of the gospel to them, read of men, amen? And then they see that you're different, and, and then you're able to prove God's perfect will by not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of, renewing of your mind, amen? So it's really critical that we, when I first became a Christian, I mean, I didn't know who to hang out with. I didn't know any Christians. Nobody gave me the gospel, explained Jesus to me. But when I was just right around, it, just turning 18 or so, right around that time, came to Christ, I was like, I'd go up in the hills, take some, an orange up there, go hiking, worship God, read his word, and just try to get to know him better and pray. Where's the Christians, Lord? I know they're not back at that Roman Catholic church I went to as a kid. I know that's not the gospel. You know, even visited a priest there and just saw even further how far off they were. And because uh, my mom was like, well, can't you at least go back to the Catholic Church because you're doing this on your own? I'm like, no, I know that's not of God. I said, I'll go talk to a priest there. And, and he was like just way out there. And then Father Michael had been there, so-called, quote-unquote, Father, calling him my father. So I say that with quotes behind it. And that guy, when I was, he's the guy with a little bit longer hair and the guitar when I was a little kid, man, we remember Father Michael, he seemed like the cool one. He ended up becoming one of those pedophiles, you know, at St. Rosalima, you know. 
There are thousands of those guys around being told they can't marry and so forth, and it's restricted. Uh, you know, Peter was married. According to the Catholics, he was the first pope. The Bible talks about his mother-in-law. Well, he wasn't the first pope, but he was married. Anyway, uh, Paul said, do we not have the right to take a wife as Peter took a wife? You know? So uh, you're talking about, talk, talk about family. You know, it's the destruction of the family uh, in that regard. But I'll tell you what, guys. Uh, my folks, my three sisters, my Tom, my brother, all five of us, uh, and my parents, none of them, nobody wanted Jesus. My friends didn't want to follow Jesus at first. You know? But I, I could have said, you know what? I'm just going to meld in and kind of just do what they do. Not be separate, because I started reading, wow, Jesus saying, come out of her, the Bible saying, come out of the world. Jesus saying, you're, you're, you know, I chose you out of this world. You're in the world, but not of the world. And you adulterous, know that the friendship with the world is empty with God. Whoever makes himself friend of the world makes himself friend of God. That last part's in James 4. Or 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, love not the world, neither things of the world. That for all this other world is the lust of flesh, lust the eyes of pride of life. That's verses 15 through 17. And the world's passing away, the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. So I seem, wow, I'm supposed to be separate from all this wickedness. And it makes sense because the Lord took me out of that wickedness. He showed me how dark it was. And I started reading scripture. I'm like, wow, God wants me to have separation. And as families that bring up children in Christ, all of us need to make sure we're encouraging them to be separated from the world. I just saw, uh, and there's so much smut being rolled out. I mean, you cannot keep up with what the devil's teaching your kids if you just let your kids just watch things randomly. I mean, it was a guy, was it Something Rains, or a, a, a guy that was an actor at the office. I don't know. Uh, what's his name? Rain Wilson. Rain Wilson. Did you see that? Yeah. Uh, he was talking about some television show made after a, uh, off of a computer game and what have you, and it was a series on HBO. And he was just saying, you know what? I knew it, you know. There was a pastor there, and he ends up being the evil guy. And he says, it seems like Hollywood's always making the pastor the evil guy, you know. And he goes, and, and, and then I think it was Evie Magazine, uh, something Martinez, the founder of that magazine. She said, as soon as, I started, as soon as I saw the pastor, I said, oh, I bet he's the really bad guy. And she called out, these are secular people kind of being nauseated by what Hollywood's been doing for years. Well, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but it's principalities and powers. And I was like, wow, you know, these guys, this is weird. We see it all the time. I've been telling you all the time, right? Christians are, Satan just has this, this deal going. It's pretty obvious to us. We just look at it and say, well, we're not of this world. This is par, par for the course. But it's weird seeing people in the world system. And the guy I just mentioned from the office, he's not a, you know, he's liberal dude, you know. And he was like, you know, he's not a good guy, I don't think, you know. But he was like, wow. But he seemed nauseous over, wow, this old tripe, man. It's not by accident, guys. So right now, there's a programming going on. They're called programs, right? You watched the program last night? Did you get nice and programmed last night? They program you with just filth, you know? And so you have to be really, really careful. I've been saying this for years. I know it's not like a broken record, but kids get lost so quickly when you just let them hear this junk because like, Satan's got all the bells and whistles out. And guess what? You're just mom or dad. You're just behind the times. You're just too strict. You're just a dinosaur, you know? And no, you have to make sure you're, you love your children. You spend time with your children. They see that you truly care about them and that, you, and that you're, interest, you're interested in their salvation. They make it clear to them that their lives are pretty short. The time goes pretty quick. It's hard for a little kid to understand that. But as they grow, they start to get it more. And that they're going to stand before God. And that they're going to give an account to God. And you live that before them. And they, they see that in your example that, hey, I need to redeem the time. The time is short. They need to see that you're about mission, that you're about reaching the lost. 
You know, I've told people for years, one of the best ways to train up your children the way they should go is bring them on mission trips. I think with Josiah and Holly and Heather, that was a huge deal. Bring them on mission trips because, and it might even be just local things I would do or presentations I'd go and do and they'd sit there and, and because they see that that's, they see that that, wow, that's, then all of a sudden before you know it, they want to go share the gospel. They want to go witnessing. They want, it, they want other people to know Jesus and, and they see the importance of knowing Jesus. Now that you, not that you can do all those things, but especially, you know, and you may be, you're, you may be, you know, if you're a younger parent and you're listening or watching or here, uh, you've got your children right now, man. Bring them up the way that they should go. And there's a lot of things you need to consider. And when I say love them, that means you're spending, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 16, do everything in love. Your parenting needs to be done with love. That's like huge because God is love, amen? Okay, you need to let, they need to know that you love them, you know? It would break my heart if Josiah, uh, Holly, uh, who's up there with Chad ministry right now, uh, her husband, it would, Heather, it'd break my heart if any of those thought for a second that I didn't love them or that mom doesn't love them. They were going to know. My daughter Heather just had a talk with me a few months ago and she said, Dad, she goes, I get it now. She goes, sometimes you'd spend three hours with me trying to get to the truth of something. You wouldn't let me go to sleep, and it was so frustrating. But now I do that to Russ, my little guy, you know. She's had another little baby named Grant. She goes, I do the same thing now with Russ because I want to make sure he's telling the truth. I go, exactly, you know. So you don't just, because I'm going to mention discipline in a little bit, and I want to augment that with the fact that when you do discipline, you do it in love, okay? Because I think discipline is incredibly lacking in the church today. So you have a bunch of leaven everywhere because in 1 Corinthians 5, the guy that's involved in sexual perversion, he's not dealt with and, and excommunicated in the church. It says he'll leaven the entire church. Well, a lot of churches are leavened because churches don't even practice church discipline now. Well, guess what? A lot of Christian homes are being leavened because there's not godly discipline being exercised. And true love will bring discipline, but true love will make sure it brings discipline but it will also do it in a loving way. Three different times in Proverbs and Hebrews 12 and in the book of Revelation chapter 3 to the church of Laodicea, the Lord says, as many as I love, does anybody remember that verse? As many as I love, I what? I what? Yep. I rebuke and discipline or rebuke and chasten. He brings correction. He loves. He rebukes, but then he disciplines. So if you love your children, you will rebuke them if, when they're wrong. And if they continue in the rebellion, then you'll discipline them. You know, and it's interesting because we're called in Ephesians chapter 6, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, verse 3, so that it may go be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now listen, verse, verse uh, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in what? This, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You're supposed to bring them up with discipline and instruction. Now, there's not a whole lot of New Testament scriptures that specifically speak on how to parent. There's a lot in Proverbs and other passages and things to learn from through the Old Testament. That's why God's given us Genesis, Revelation, amen? So you can see the principles in the New Testament. You can ferret out their meaning and put see the flesh and bone that's put on them in the Old Testament stories because those things were written down so we would be have hope, and also so we'd be warned. So we get this powerful testimony of what it means to bring them up in the nurture, or I should say the instruction, or the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. 
Uh, but it says not to provoke them to anger. I'm not going to. I want so many things I want to get into. I don't have time to get into. I just did a men's retreat. We just did a men's retreat uh, a couple months ago back east. I was 45 or 50 guys or so from different states, and it was just went really well. Uh, but one of the things I focused on, probably half of a message, was on different ways you can exasperate your children, over disciplining them, disciplining them in anger, not disciplining them. You know all these different things you could end up doing wrong, and we have to be very very careful. Uh, and so forth. But we talk not just about discipline, but just how you can exasperate your children or you can provoke them to anger and by being fleshly, you know, by neglecting them, by not showing them love, all kinds of things, which I'm not going to get into here. I think I spent a lot of time on that because uh, it was part of what I wanted to share with the men. But I want to talk about discipline a little bit here because we can go in a lot of directions. I've sh- shared with you over and over and over again, we have a whole series on parenting. Now, p- principles of parenting, I think it's like 10 messages long or something. If you're like, man, I, I want a series on parenting. Have you I've got an incredibly long one on that. But I talk about it in a lot of messages, and this one's specifically on it. But uh, discipline's very, very important. But training your children up, I'm always encouraging you to teach your children the Word. Amen? So I'm not going to go through a lot of those scriptures. There's scriptures to the fathers, scriptures to the mothers, to train your children the Word, whether it's Titus 2 or cup places in Proverbs. But what about discipline? What about discipline? I'm going to give you just one passage more on, on, a, on instruction. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5 through 9. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Take to heart these words that I give you today. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home or away, when you lie down or get up. Write them down and tie them around your wrist and wear them as headbands. As a reminder, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That means God's word is where? Everywhere. Amen? So as Josiah takes a little break right now and goes to the bathroom, I think Steve put up a really good scripture in the men's room. I don't know if he's going to be looking at it or not. I don't know if he's going to the men's room. I'm just embarrassing my son. But uh, there's a scripture. Steve just has a scripture up there. So you can't even pee without seeing the word of God in this church. I love that. You know? You're here, you kind of just look to the left, the right, you see some scripture, uh, because that's how our lives are supposed to be, permeated with the Word of God, amen? And this is the context of making sure our children are being permeated with the Word of God. Well, now they're being permeated with the world system in a lot of churches, and it breaks my heart. I, I plead with you because I see so many children in the church just going the way of the world, or you send them off to college, you spend a ton of money on what you think is a really good college, and they get professors or they're socialists. Or encouraging them to change their sex or consider, you know, making that their rally cry and their mission in life becomes transgenderism rather than the gospel. You go, what happened to my kid? This is wicked what's going on, guys. And these are, sometimes these are professing, a lot of times these are professing Christian colleges. You can go to Cal Lutheran University down there right now, just over the, just over the little hill and to a, a Thousand Oaks area and it's full-blown liberal apostate not about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, Nick, who became an elder in our church, was raised from a little boy in this church, is now pastoring the church in Idaho. His Bible teacher goes, I'm going to take Bible class. His Bible teacher just tried to, tried to rip up the Bible. You know, no kidding. And the Bible's wrong because of this and this and this. And then Nick, it forced him, because he's a young guy at the time, new in college, his faith was being tested. And he went and checked out what the guy was saying. And he wrote a thing to the back and said, well, you're wrong about this and this and this and this. This is why you're wrong. And it's strength. That's, that's not normal, though. You know, and Nick said in his testimony, you know, praise God. His testimony is he was brought up in the Word of God here. Amen. He was also brought up by a godly mother that kept, that put him, put, made sure he knew the Word. Amen. 
Now you can have a thousand godly mothers and you can bring them up to know the word, but you can, like the old saying, you bring a horse to water, you can't make them drink, amen? But at least bring them to the water of God's word, amen? And pray for them and example uh, to them and so forth. So it's important that there is, listen, direction, God's word, amen? But there's also correction. There's correction when there's rebellion against God's word. And there's correction where this is wrong, honey. I'm so sorry, you cannot do this. Ooh, sometimes what you see then is rebellion, though. Okay, I'm not allowed to cross over this line. Well, just let me stick my foot a little bit over it and see what you're going to do. And they'll test us. That's the flesh. I was a rebellious kid growing up, so I learned to be really patient with my kids. Okay? When they're, when they, when they're growing up, I'm like, whatever they did, I'm thinking, I'm going to tell them how bad I was. When they get older, I'll let them know. But, you know, uh, but I also had understanding to a degree. But it's interesting when you see the scripture, where there's a lot of things that we must consider here. And uh, it's important, it's, it's imperative that uh, sometimes children are in rebellion because we neglect to spend time with them. Sometimes it's because uh, we're in a relentless pursuit of a career and we don't spend time with them. Thousands and thousands and thousands of kids have fallen away because the parents were more into their career than they were bringing their children up in Christ. And that might have been with a good intention of, hey, I want to make sure they that I can pay for their college and everything else, is, which a lot of times they're not realizing what's going to go when they're going to a specific college. But in the meantime, their kids are getting involved in, you know, sexual perversion, in drugs, uh, in evil philosophies, the occult, Satanism, all kinds of stuff, the music that's so popular in the world today. Now, it's interesting. Uh, uh, one story I love in the Old Testament that I think is very, very eye-opening is, uh, well, first of all, let me read 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now, all these things, meaning in the Old Testament times, happen to them as examples, and they were written down for our warning or our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. So these things that happened in the Old Testament, God had them written down so we would take heed. So we take warning as to what to or what not to do. Uh, and a, a really good example of that is Eli. The priest, the high priest who basically oversaw the tabernacle. And I encourage you guys, read the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, man, because you'll read about how strict God was regarding the offerings, right? What belonged to him, what belonged to the priest, what types of offerings, and so forth. These offerings so often being a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is the high priest had a couple priests under him, which were his sons. He had, there's a bunch of priests under him, but... He had two priests under him, his sons that were named Hophni, right? And Phinehas, or Phinehas. Sometimes people pronounce him Phinehas, some Phinehas. We'll call him, I'll probably call him both through this message, but we'll call him Phinehas for now. Uh, but Phinehas and, uh, and Hophni, they were, th they were thieves, and they were sexually immoral. They were fornicators, okay? And they were in ministry, so it'd be like, you know, having, you know, Chad, you know, my son-in-law, he's in ministry here, but that he's like ripping people off, you know, and that he's committed adultery, you know. Well, <laughs> it's my daughter, Chad. Don't you dare, man. But I'm just saying if that was happening, that's not Chad's heart. But if that was happening, and then I just said you shouldn't do that, but didn't do anything about it. That would be pretty messed up, huh? Said, Chad, it's wrong that you're doing that, you know. People are coming to me that you're sleeping with other women in the church and, and you're taking things and stuff that don't belong to you. 
but didn't do anything about it. Well, that's what was going on. In fact, go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm going to have to go through this quickly, rather rapidly. But uh, it's interesting because when you go there to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, I want you to go ahead and look at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. <laughs> King James calls them, they're sons of Belial. They're worthless men. Verse 12, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. They did not know the Lord. Okay, they had a lot of, they had a lot of head knowledge because they were priests. But make sure you don't just teach your children the truth. You let them know they need to love the truth. They need to love Jesus. Amen. It's not enough to know the truth. You must know the Lord. John 73, this eternal life said Jesus that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Verse 13, and the custom of the priest with the people, uh, I'm sorry, they didn't know the Lord, okay? And it says, and the custom of the priest with the people, uh, they didn't know the Lord. And now it's interesting, uh, when any man was offering, verse 13, a sacrifice, the priest's uh, servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all the fork brought up for the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also before, uh, also before they burned the fat, the priest's uh, servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, uh, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will take the boiled meat from you uh, only raw. And if the man said to him, uh, they must surely burn the fat first, which was what was the law said, and they take as much as, and then he says, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. So what happened is the Lord was supposed to get the fat of the offering. He was supposed to get the first of the offering. He was supposed to get the best. And the priest would get the leftovers, but it would still be yummy, right? They'd still eat pretty good. But guess what? They wanted to do the opposite. They wanted to first give me the raw meat. Let me cook it up for myself and give God the leftovers. That's what these priests were doing. Verse 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. God's serious, guys. Very great before the Lord. For the men despised the offering of the Lord. That's heavy, man. So these Eli's sons were wicked guys and they had no regard for the Lord. Okay, look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old. And he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with what? They lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So the servants, the women that were serving in the temple, now they're having sexual relations with those women as well. They didn't fear God, you guys. They didn't know the Lord. It was just a ritual for them. And that's the way it is. And by the way, thousands and thousands of churches today, people, I remember somebody was telling me that, you know, their worship leader for some time, he was saying, Actually, a guy that I was doing some ministry with, he said, before I was a Christian, I was hired because I could sing as a worship leader at a church. I go, but you didn't know the Lord? I was a young, naive Christian at the time. And uh, he goes, no, I didn't know the Lord at all, but they just, you know. And I, then I found out later, man, there's people that have homosexuals that they know are homosexuals leading worship in their churches, you know, even though they're not following the Lord and obeying him and so forth. And we're, invite, we're asking for judgment, man, because we just, oh, well, you know what? God will be glorified. No, God's glorified when you obey him. And we'd rather have a church, I've told you this over and over again, I mean this from the Lord knows my heart. If this fellowship, you know, 
was one or two people that feared and loved the Lord and we had to just dissipate, but I, I just hung out with be, be, people that still love the Lord and love Jesus. I'd rather have that than hundreds of people that didn't really care about the Lord and were just there just, to, to, you know, just because they wanted to go to church but didn't love God. That's not church. That's a sham is what that is. So it's interesting. For, uh, Eli's, now to Eli's credit, he does warn them. We talked about giving your children direction, right? And then correction. Well, he does the direction thing. He does the correction thing. Because look, at, you're going to see he corrects them. Look at verse 23 and 24. He said to them, Why do you do such things, Eli to Hophni and Phinehas? The evil things that I hear from these people. He could have been yelling even. I don't know. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord... Who, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now guess what? God knew their hearts. And he knew that they were going to reject their father's counsel. Who knows how many times he may have already come to them. We don't know uh, if, he, if he did or what have you. It would be kind of astonishing that being an old guy, he never disciplined them until now. But this isn't really discipline. There was direction. There's correction. But this is not discipline. Because they continued in their rebellion. They continued to sleep with women. Okay, they continued to, uh, these were thank offerings, by the way, and they continued to take the choice to be the thank offering that belonged to the Lord and feast on it themselves. And, uh, the, and <laughs> they would not listen, it says, to the voice of their father. They refused to listen to him. But you know what? You say, well, Eli looks like he's doing good here. On the surface, it looks good. But guess what he didn't do? Uh, he failed to bar them from performing sacrifices. He failed to keep them from sleeping with the women that were working at the temple. He failed to remove them from their positions. He failed to take away their priestly garments. He failed to depose them from their priestly office. He failed them to bring them to the elders of the gate, which is what should have happened if they were practicing fornicators and refusing to repent, according to the Scripture. He failed to bring an end to that fornication. Uh, he, utterly, he just utterly failed to stop them. Now, picture this. Now, we're talking a little different than your children being at your home here. Now we're talking about older children, but they're in ministry with you, okay? And we see this hypocrisy going on. But we have to move on. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, 27 through 29. Because there comes a time when we can't just talk, just talk simply. We have to act, amen? And he wasn't acting. Verse 27, then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Now Eli's in trouble, guys. Now he's getting disciplined or corrected. Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of the, your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the... Uh, all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel. I mean, I blessed you guys. I blessed the household, the priesthood. Verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling? The sacrifices were a picture of Christ. They're basically kicking Jesus or kicking the pictures of Jesus, okay? Holding the sacrifice in contempt, not fearing the Lord, not treating that which is holy as that which is truly holy. And the Bible warns the priests in the Old Testament more than once that they made no distinction between that which is holy and that which is profane or that which is unholy. And right now there's no sense of holiness in the church. 
and treating the Word of God with reverence to God's Word. Praise you, God, for your Word. Amen. Praise you for praising God for who He is. And, 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 you know, like the holy seraphim, angels that are far more powerful than us, you know, with, you know, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty in His presence. And they're burning ones. Seraphim means burning ones. And they're glowing, man, because they're before God's throne and they're, two of their wings are before their eyes. And He's so holy. And just because you're on earth doesn't mean you could treat him as unholy and his things as unholy. We need to fear God, amen, and recognize how holy God is. So it's, it's really sad because we can fail to discipline our children. Direction, yes. Correction, yes. He brought those. But guess what? Discipline, no. In fact, go ahead and look at verse 30 or verse 20. Let me see. Uh, verse 30, yeah, pick up verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. You're going to have them walk. It's a promise, man. They're, your house is going to walk before me forever, but it's a conditional promise. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Isn't that awesome? Jesus said, if you honor the father, he'll honor you. Honor the father, man. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, he's talking to Eli, when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Wow. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of the good that I do for all Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar. He says, So that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign that which you will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And Phinehas, on the same day, both of them will die. Wow, guys. Brothers and sisters, man, it's imperative that you discipline your children, okay? Because you might think, oh, I'm too tired. Oh, I'm their friend. We're best friends. Really? I mean, Josiah called me up today and asked me to go to lunch with him and Heather. And we just, it was 2.45. And I had already eaten lunch. And I was like, okay, Lord, can I get my message done in time? And I'm like, okay, I'll go. It would just be an early dinner. So I had an early dinner at 2.45. But you know what? It's important because, but you know what? It's imperative that we keep in mind that, uh, we, that we have relationships with our children. And I can say Josiah is definitely one of my best friends without a doubt. But guess what? And I, he was my friend when he was a little guy, okay? But he also knew I was dad. He also knew I walked softly, but carried not a big stick. So he will run with that and say, he hit his kid with a big stick. No, but, you know, I just swatted his rear end a few times here and there, you know? And uh, he's a pretty good kid in a lot of ways. Told me later I was actually a bad kid in certain ways too, Dad. I go, yeah, you're always Dad's angel. No, I didn't say that. But, uh, but you know what? It's interesting because you can't just say, hey, with your kids, we're just, you know, you're my best friend and we're just friends. And, because guess what? So, so many parents are doing that today. And they're in discussions with their friend, their kids, their friend. Oh, do you think that you might sometimes feel like you should be a woman, a little girl? After I'm your friend. Or, or to the little girl, do you, sometimes I see you playing with your brothers. Do you want to be a boy? Mom, what mom? I mean, oh, my daughter was really conf- saying that she really thinks she's supposed to be a guy, and she was so elaborate about it, and she's like four years old, right? You're like, give me a break, man. There's so much smut being put in the kids' heads. 
And I, my heart breaks for the kids most of all, man. I'm just like, whoa, Lord, this is so sick and so twisted what they're doing to the kids right now, man. But these parents, I feel bad for them in the sense that they are in huge, huge trouble. The Bible says, a better a large millstone be rung. Jesus said, a large millstone be hung around your neck, you'd be thrown in the depths of the sea than the judgment you'd face if you harm one of the little ones, you know? So, and the grace and mercy is there for those parents if they repent, amen? But they need to repent because this is serious. So it's not enough to be friends with your kids. I can see, you know, there's something going on. We don't know exactly, but Eli with Phinehas and, and uh, with, with, his other, with his brother Hophni, he's not bringing the discipline. He doesn't want to hurt his relationship with them or something. We don't know exactly what's going on there. Maybe he just wants to be friends. But if you're a parent, you're a parent before you're a friend. I'm not saying don't be a friend. The Bible says that Abraham was called the friend of God. Jesus said, no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to be your friends. But guess what? We are servants. We are still servants of the Most High God. Amen. And the, beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is just not an Old Testament doctrine. Amen. I could show you about 40 references to the fear of God in the New Testament. About the same amount of references to the word love in the New Testament. Kind of interesting, huh? In the very end, Revelation, when it ends, the, the angel goes and preaches the everlasting gospel. The first words of his mouth are, fear God. Ooh, they better fear God, man, because the wrath of God has been falling during the tribulation period. And it says God brings his judgments that the nations may learn righteousness. Amen. The fear of God is everlasting, the Bible says. It's not something that goes away. So I taught my children from a young age to love God and to fear God because he's a holy God. Amen. And Fini uh, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, either they didn't get a lot of instruction that way or they didn't get a lot of correction, but they got some, we see, but they didn't get disciplined because he is not taking them from their priestly duties. These men should not have been priests. Amen? So look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. Now Eli was 98 years old. Wow. And his eyes were set uh, so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line because they're fighting the, the Philistines, right? And, uh, and by the way, as a result of his, mis, his bad behavior, this was partially what, this is the result. What you're going to read here is a result of not just, and Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas they, yeah, they're responsible for their own sin. They're adults. They're, you know, past age of accountability. They're responsible big time. But he's responsible for this too. And what happens here? Because he said, both your sons will die on the same day. And they're battling the Philistines, and they steal the Ark of the Covenant because of this sin of not being a good parent. You know, that, that factors into it to a degree. The man said to Eli, I, verse 16, that is, I am one of that came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Then one that was uh, brought said, uh, the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there was also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. Verse 18, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off his seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. Wow. Now what's going on here, guys? I mean, we've it's kind of spelled out pretty clearly. But look at 1 Samuel 3.13. For I have told him that I'm about to judge his house, that is, told Eli, forever, for the iniquity which he knew. Eli, Eli knew about it. 
which he knew about, because his sons brought a curse on themselves. And he did not what? He didn't rebuke them. Oh, he corrected them. This is wrong. But he let them continue in that. Chapter 3, verse 13 is a key verse right there, guys. So if you're parenting, and you're like, well, I don't want to be too strong on my child and let them, you know, yeah, my kid goes around punching other kids in the face, you know, and spitting on them and stuff. And I'm telling him it's wrong. But you don't try to stop him. You don't discipline him. You don't, you know, use the rod at all. Uh, I had so many verses from Proverbs about disciplining and spanking and, and so forth. And not that you have to always spank, because there's a lot of different ways. The Lord disciplines us in various ways, right? But it's interesting. Let me just read a few of these. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Wow. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and a rebuke give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Wow. That's what we're seeing right here, man. Shame to his father, too. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son. For in that there is hope. Do not be a party to his death. Eli was a party to the sons, two of his sons' deaths, right? Wow. Proverbs 29, 17. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will bring delight to your soul. Well, his sons brought the exact opposite. Proverbs 3, 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and as he does a father, does his son in whom he delights. Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's for sure, man. They've got that Adamic fallen nature, just like all of us. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. Proverbs 23, 14. Strike him with a rod and you will deliver his soul from hell. Wow. Now, I'm not bringing this here because it would take, uh, well, a couple reasons. But I had researched Dr. Spock before, but I researched him a few months ago again. And Dr. Spock was Mr. Permissive, right? He was, uh, uh, you know, basically, he did a whole thing on child, on parenting, and he was, you know, from a psychological standpoint, and it, it helped breed the permissive society because he didn't talk once in there, his book about spanking your children at all. It was like, you know, and then later on, he admitted after the hippie movement and all that stuff went down and, you know, the, the world became so permissive and, and sex, drugs, rock and roll and all that stuff. In one of his interviews, he admitted that he was wrong and so forth. Now, it's funny because I was able to find the internet that people say that he never actually said it was wrong. Just Christians started reporting that it was wrong. So then I found out in the interview, I, I searched it down. I had to look a while, and I was surprised people didn't search it out because I actually found where he's been interviewed by a secular publication where he admitted that it was wrong to come against spanking children. You know? Now, years later, of course, he reneged again, but guess what? He admitted that for some time because he was seen you know, the fruit of not discipline. I mean, you guys, when you refuse to discipline your children, you're showing them that they can get away with evil. And there's no consequences to that evil. Okay? Then when they get older, they're doing their own thing. They're in a bar, you know? And they're used to fighting Johnny for what they want. And before you know it, they're pulling out a knife or they're picking a fight and they get shot in the head by somebody at the bar or something. Because you're, they, they, cause then all of a sudden they realize, oh, there are consequences to rebellion. What happens at home, and when we're talking about discipline, I'm not talking about, you know, smashing your kid's back with a huge stick, okay? We're not talking about that, okay? 
But a few swats on the rear end with your, with your hand or what have you, or a uh, uh, timeouts, uh, grounding from certain things, consequences that are tangible, right? And where you don't just hopefully wing it and just say something to them and, oh, that'll fix it. But you're actually spending time in their life and seeing how they're reacting and praying with them through that. You can ask Josiah, I would discipline them lovingly, but I'd also pray with them. You know, I'd be on my knees often praying with them, Lord, help them, and they'd be praying with me, you know, Lord, help them overcome this, you know, grieving, crying out to the Lord for the work of the Holy Spirit to, 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 to take place in their lives, for, for them to become Christ-like in time, for them to, and they would know for sure, they might think I'm crazy at time, but they knew I loved them, they knew their mom loved them, you know, but I'll tell you what, it's not like I said a guarantee, because children have free will, but you have to do what you can do, okay, and if you know that you're sought to do the will of the Lord, don't let the enemy become the accuser of the brethren and condemn you over it, okay, but if you're not doing what the Lord's called you to do. Let the Holy Spirit convict you to correct it, amen, and to do what's right. Because guess what? I'm not just your friend and say, no, everything's cool, don't worry. You, you tried your best. I'm your friend. I'm going to say, hey, praise God, you tried. Keep trying, that's good. But I'm also your pastor. And I'm not going to be like Eli and say, yeah, just, just tell them that you, know, you love them and everything's cool, everything will turn out. They've been saved by grace. doesn't matter what happens, how they live in the future. Because once they've been saved, they're always saved no matter how rebellious they are to God. No, I'm not saying that. It's not what God's word says. Jesus says, you know, don't fear man who can destroy the body. He says to his apostles, but fear God who can destroy your body and soul in hell. You need to have straight talk with them, man. You say, hey, this is serious. You need to make sure you know Jesus, amen? You need to make sure that you are following Christ. And you need to let them know that that needs to be something that they see in your life. That you live that way. That you have a fear and trembling before the Lord. And what should be able to be said about each of you as parents by your children, the most important thing is, let's say they even are not believers. Say you've got four kids and none of them believe, but at least hopefully they'll say, that, hey, I know mom and dad believe what they believe, and I know they were real and they were genuine. Because then they're going to have a hard time just throwing off what you said. If they, and God can bring what you've done and said to them to their hearts and bring them back, hopefully to him. But the key is, is hopefully you're doing this from cradle to the grave, that you're a good example before them, amen? From the womb to the tomb, man, that you're shining the light of Jesus for them because these are God's children first, amen? I mean, he's way more intimately concerned about them than any of us are about any of our kids. That blows me away to think that because it hurts my head. I'm like, I love my kids so much to think that God knows them more deeply and cares about them so much more, and he does. It's a slam dunk. I mean, the cross was him dying for our kids and all of us, amen? That's amazing love. And lastly, you know, share the gospel with them. Because guess what? You give them the do's and the don'ts, and here's the law, right? But you share Jesus with them because they're going to find out that they can't own up to God's word, that they're going to fall short. They're going to feel bad. They're going to feel like they've fallen short, and they, guess what? They're going to feel that way because they have. All of us have, amen? But you need to point them to Jesus. Because even as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and also 10, 6, that these things were written down as examples, right? So that we might, you know, uh, learn from them, right? And grow from them uh, and be warned. In Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning, that we through perseverance and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. These things were all written, also written, so we might have hope. Amen. So I look at these things, I'm saying, okay, how does that give us hope? Well, it shows me if I don't do what Eli did, right, and I bring my children up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, amen, 
and I don't just give him direction and her direction or them direction, but also correction. But I don't just stop at correction. I also bring discipline and say, hey, I'm so sorry. You, you, you're not going to be able, we can't do this. We're not going to go there this weekend because of X, Y, and Z, you know? Now, I, this is a hard message to preach because I want to cover so much ground and I want to get done on time today. And I'm just saying to you guys that it can be really difficult at times. That's why you need to be in prayer. You cry out to God and say, Lord God, I fall short. You know, we all fall short as parents, amen? And you're just real before your children. You're saying, hey, I have to rely on the blood of Christ. You have to have those talks. I'm not a perfect parent, but they know that you're sincere. They know that you're relying on Christ and they see you as an example, as a person that, guess what? Well, that's where my parents find peace. That's where they have hope because they're trusting in Christ. And remember, the gospel, it says in Romans 1.16, Paul says, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and also the Greek. Amen? You share the gospel with them. You live the gospel with them. You share the cross with them. You let them know our hope is what Jesus did for us, his resurrection and the blessed hope and that he's coming back and that we have an eternity together with him if you're trusting him and we're going to have this glorious future together if you put your faith in Christ. But you let them know if you don't put your faith in the Christ, you're going to be separated from the life of God. You're not going to enter into his, his, his life and you're going to have eternal darkness forever and ever. Amen? So there's so much, uh, you know, these messages are always tough for me because I always want to say a thousand more things that I have time to say. But it's not meant to be that way. It's meant to just take line upon line, precept upon precept. What's God's word say? How do I apply this to my life? Love your children. Spend time with your children. Invest your lives in your children. Put them before you put your career. Amen. Put, put, put the Lord and his kingdom before your careers. Amen. And, and the things of this world, we shouldn't be judging Christians about what do you do for a living? We should be saying, hey, brother, you know, how's your walk with Jesus, man? Praise God. Let's serve him. That's the main thing. Amen. The plain things of the kingdom should be the main things in our lives. And that's serving Christ first and making our lives count. Our lives are short, man. And I don't want that in my life and my funeral to be say, well, Joe did, you know, had two jobs and he did this, that and the other. No, I want people to know that I love them that I spent time with them, that I cared about them, and that I want to make, know that they were walking with Jesus. I want my, my wife, my children, my grandchildren to know that. I want my brothers and sisters to know that. And because that's who I am. That's who he is. He, he gives us his life. And Jesus says, no greater love does a man have than this. They lay down his life for his friends. Amen. Let's lay our lives down for our children. Amen. And if we can't lay our lives down for our children, and we can't manage our own, the, 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 our own households, how can we manage the household of God? Amen. So let's start home, at home and make sure we're real, you know. And uh, praise God, you know. I mean, anybody can ask. That's where you live your life. People could be hypocritical and have two different lives. Don't do that, man. You can go to my son. I say that one because he's the kid that's here right now. Sitting there. You could go to my wife over there. And see, I didn't say wives. Husband and one wife, right? <laughs> you can go to my wife and you can ask them how I am at home, okay? They're not going to say... Oh, he walks on water. He's perfect. No, they won't say that because I'm far from perfect. But they know I'm real and they know I love them and they know I rely on Christ's grace and they know I seek to go forward as a sincere person, you know. That's, that's, I've, that's because I wake up in the morning and I want Jesus first. So I don't have to think of a thousand one things i got to do. I just think, Jesus, how am I going to see you serve you today? How am I going to love like you love? How am I going to share your word and, and, and seek to be loving to others and show the love that you've shown me, show the forgiveness that you've shown me to others? And you show your kids love and forgiveness and mercy and those beautiful things that he's worked in your own life, that he's given to you, not just rules, right? 
There's the word of God. We're not going to poo-poo rules because that's what Satan wants to do. A lot of churches, oh, we don't live by rules, man. We just go by the Spirit. Really? The Spirit's the one who put down these commandments in the New Testament. And it's not legalism. It's the law of Christ. Amen? The New Testament's called the law of Christ. And we live by the law of Christ, but it's a love relationship with him. And if we love him, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. And 1 John 5, 12 says, this is love of God, that we keep his commandments and they're not burdensome. And if you teach your children that God wants to have a relationship with them, amen, and wants them to know him, and that he created them to have eternal life, bottom line, last thing I'm saying, if you teach your children that they were created and designed by God so he knows how he wired them, he wired them for his glory, and he wants them to know him, and he wants to enrich your life and be, and be blessing to you, but you're a sinner, we're all sinners, you need that forgiveness that comes through Christ to be reconciled to God through the death, burial, and resurrection. You can have eternal life, but you can have eternal life with him, but guess what? And you fall in love with him, and you recognize every day that, wow, he gave himself for you. He didn't have to make you, but he made you, and he knew you were going to blow it, and he died for you, and if you just love him back, he that forgive him much, loves much. We love him because he first loved us. And you talk about that relationship, that they'll get them through a bunch of different hurdles, a bunch of different problems, because in the end, you've taught them what it means to walk in love. And it, you haven't just given them direction, though. You brought correction, and you brought what else? Discipline in a loving way. Amen? Let's pray.